Let's then turn to the Word of God for our studies and return to the passage that we read earlier on, or Daniel read to us, from Ruth's Gospel, uh, chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verses 31 to verse 38. I'm sure that you are aware that, aware that there are many false preachers uh, these days, there are many uh, false teachers who come into our pulpits and they often say, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved and all your solutions will be provided. A certain songs confirm the kind of teaching that the chorister ends and now I am happy all day. In many ways this is false teaching uh, that can lead not only to disappointment but it also can lead many people astray in the Christian life. The fact of the matter is this, we are all in a spiritual conflict. We are all in a spiritual battle. We're facing a spiritual warfare. And that conflict is red hot. The problem, of course, of this battle is a spiritual one. Therefore, it's an invisible one. And we do not always see certain things that remind us of the spiritual conflict that we are facing. And as a consequence, or as a result, we tend to forget. But of course, it's not reasonable from a human point of view. Our eyes cannot see the spiritual world, cannot see the spiritual realm, Nevertheless, the Bible makes it very clear that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. So it's from that point of view that we are made aware of the spiritual conflict, of the spiritual battle that we all have to face. Of course, this is not easy. We look at everything from a human point of view, and the moment we go through difficulties or, or trials or hardship, we try to tackle them, forgetting that there's a source behind all these sins, that there's a power behind all these sins, that there's a conflict in the spiritual world. So why are we all involved in this spiritual conflict? Why are we all involved in this spiritual battle? And why do we have to struggle so much in the spiritual life? Well, the answer, quite simply, is so reasonable that we tend to forget. But the reason why we're in this conflict is because we have an enemy. We have someone who will work all his energies to pull us down and pull us apart. And that enemy, of course, is the evil one. Now we know that the devil is no ordinary enemy. The fact of the matter is this, that he's powerful, where his influence and power is just as powerful in the spiritual realm as well as the present world. But we know that like demons, Satan was once an angel, but he's fallen away. Even Jesus gave him a title by calling him the prince of this world, or the prince of darkness. 
And although Satan is a power, it's always worth reminding ourselves, time and time again, they may be powerful, they may be mighty, but he's not almighty. And the wonderful thing about this, he has been totally defeated and crushed. And as we remind ourselves of this, we therefore conclude that he is not the victor. Uh, that uh, victory belongs to God alone. Nevertheless, while in this world, while we're in this world before we enter the next world, we have an enemy. And God has given the enemy divine permission to have his own season and be a menace to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet when we turn to this passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, and verses 31 to verse 32, we see how fierce this conflict is. We see a debate taking place between God and the devil. We see a discussion over God's servant, Peter. This, of course, is not the first time that uh, we read in the scriptures of a discussion or, or a debate over God's people, over God's servant. A classic example of this is seen in the Old Testament in the book of Job, where we are told that Job was an upright man, a righteous man, a good man. But Satan went into the presence of God and he said, well, the only reason why he's a good man and the only reason why he's an upright man is because all things are going well for him. He's got wealth, he's got riches, he's got a wife, he's got a, a, a lovely family and all things therefore are going well for him but the moment things become very difficult for him, well, he will curse you. And so God allowed these sins to go against him. And we know the story. Job lost everything. He lost his children, he lost his stock, he lost his servant, he lost his livelihood, he lost all these sins. Yet Job still remained true to God. And then we are told that on another day, the angels came to worship God, and amongst the angels was Satan. And Satan came with them. And God points his finger at Satan and says, See, Job has remained true to me. Ah, said Satan, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life, yet stretch out his hand and stretch his flesh, and he will curse you. And so God allowed Job to be afflicted all the more. And that's when we're told they had boils and sores all over his body. <coughs> the boils were so terrible that Job had to break pottery and with the broken pottery he had to scrape his boils to give some relief to the eczema that he was going through and the pain that he was going through. There it is, a sharp piece of vessel giving some kind of relief. That was the agony that Job was going through. And clearly, the point is this. God and Satan have debates and discussions over individuals. God and Satan have discussions and debates over certain Christians. And who knows? Right now, there may be discussion over you between God and Satan. 
You look at your own life. You look at circumstances. Maybe things are going well, but Satan comes along and says, give me some room here where I'm allowed to inflict this person here or that certain things will go wrong for him. And who knows? And there's a spiritual debate between God and Satan over Peter. And this came about uh, because his disciples uh, that he was going uh, along with was taken uh, away and to be arrested and put to death. And the disciples said, no, 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 Lord, we're not going to have that. We're going to defend you right to the very last. And therefore they started having a discussion about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus had to put a stop to it and say, you're missing the whole point here. You're missing the fact that there's an evil one here who wants you. And it was down to Peter who was saying, no Lord, I won't let this happen to you. And Jesus had to rebuke him. But in the rebuke, he said he is praying for Peter that he will not fall. But when he does fall, he will be restored to the Lord and he must be strengthened, uh, must give strength to his brothers. Yet the point is, Christ is making Peter and us aware of the spiritual realms and the spiritual conflict that we're facing. So as we look at these two verses, let's look at what these verses tell us. First of all, these two verses tell us something about ourselves in this spiritual conflict. Uh, Verses 31 to verse 32 tell us about you and me in this spiritual conflict. And there are three subheadings here. First of all, these verses tell us that we are ignorant to the spiritual realms. We are ignorant to the spiritual world. Look at Peter. Clearly, he was taken aback by all this. And so much so that he missed the point. That's why he jumped the gun and said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. I'm ready to go with you in prison and death. Here it is. Jesus tells him about a spiritual conflict. Yet Peter goes back to what Jesus was saying before and you see the point. Being ignorant to the spiritual world. Being ignorant to the spiritual conflict. Can you imagine if we're allowed to pull back the curtains and we're able to look into the spiritual realms and the spiritual world. And there we'll see all of the devil's attacks and Peter was blind to his own failings blind to his pride blind to his self-confidence that he could not see it and in like manner we cannot see the invisible world but we are in this conflict secondly these verses tell us because we are ignorant to the spiritual world that we are in need of greater grace That's why Jesus said to Peter, but I have prayed for you. We all all need prayers. I need your prayers. You need my prayers. You need the prayers of your fellow believers. You need the prayers 
of the church. And when we hear of people praying for us, there's no greater source of encouragement, especially when they're going through a trial, and you hear someone say, I am praying for you. But there's someone greater who's praying for us. The Lord Jesus Christ. They are saying to Peter, but I'm praying for you. In the same way as the great high priest, he's praying for you and he's praying for me. Before I was converted, I remember being greatly moved one day when I walked into my father's room. There he was on his knees. And there he was, he was praying for my conversion. He didn't know that I was in the room at the time, so I walked out very quietly. But it stirred me. Praying for me. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you. And there's no greater prayer for you than the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all because we're in a deeper need of grace. Peter may have been ignorant, but later he came to understand. Thirdly, we like Peter can be transformed by God's almighty power. Look at the way Christ says to Peter in verse 32, when you've turned your back, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, when you've recovered in repentance, when you've recovered from half-heartedness, when you've recovered from the fall, when you've recovered from the denial of me, then you're able to go back to your brothers and you're able to tell them how you were able to overcome and how you did this by God's almighty power. And that is to say that Peter's failure will be bad for Peter, yet God will turn it around and he bring good out of it. It's so much so that Peter was restored, so much so that for the last 2,000 years, Christians have looked at this story and saw how God has turned it around and made Peter useful again. Because that's no excuse for failure. That's no excuse for setback. It's not a case of, well, God can make good use of it. Look at the consequences that Peter had to go through with that terrible trial. The distance when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. The cock crowing. When he heard that he had betrayed him for the third time. And even when uh, he saw the risen Lord and Jesus said to him, Lord, do you love me? We're told that Peter was hurt. But God was able to restore him. And that reminds us that we ourselves, once we have failed, once we have fallen, God is able to transform us by his mighty power and the work of grace. These verses tell us something about ourselves. But then there's a second thing to notice about the conflict. These verses tell us about our enemy in the conflict. The enemy is called by name. And Satan, look at verse 31. Satan has asked to shift you as wheat. 
Here, Jesus is referring to Satan as a personal being. He's not referring to Satan as, as some influence. He's not referring to Satan as something that, that's uh, in the air. But he's talking about him as a personal being. And these things are not always sufficiently thought of by Christians. Perhaps because we know that we have a saviour who is almighty and defeats Satan every time. And that's true. Yet the fact remains that he's stronger than you and me. He's stronger than the whole world put together. And what is more, he is dangerous. Remember how Peter describes him in 1 Peter chapter 5, he described him like a, a roaring lion. He's so experienced that he's studied the human heart for a scale of time since the beginning of time. So what then does Jesus say about him in these three verses? Well, first of all, he says he's incredibly brutal. Look at the way Christ puts it. Satan is after shifters wheat. Peter and the disciples would have known what Jesus meant here. In those days, wheat would put in a large sieve and then it would be aggressive and you shake it through. And the experience would be brutal. And that's Christ's description of how Satan would treat us if he got his own way, that he would put us in a sieve and he would shake us left, right and centre and he would do so in a hard way. And that reminds us just how violent and brutal the evil one is. Just like a wolf who sees a lamb who would tear it apart. Satan would do that for any a Christian where he would rip them apart. And these verses tell us what Satan is like. Secondly, these verses tell us that a Satan is a spearhead attack of our faith. Look at the way Jesus puts it. In verse 32, I have prayed that your faith will not fail. Why did the devil attack our faith? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, we can never trust God. But Satan is a fool. Because no true Christian can completely lose his faith. He may cause us to doubt. He may fill our minds with uncertainty and unbelief. We still may believe in certain things, but at the end of the day, even if we've drifted so far away, there's always that seed of faith and belief in all our hearts. And this is where Satan attacks our faith. Thirdly, and this might sound a little unusual, but Satan attacks those who are at the forefront of the battle. It makes sense, doesn't it? A military leader, a general or commander, a leader of an army, kill him, then the army will fall apart. And that reminds us of all gospel preachers that reminds us of all those who are evangelists. 
or those who are out on the mission field. Satan wants to attack them and he wants to destroy them. And you see here that Peter, he was seen to be the leader or the spokesman of, of the apostles. And Satan knew that if I can get this man to fall, then the Christian church will be a laughing stock. That's why you read of many stories in the scriptures of how great men were attacked. You think of the birth of Moses. What was the aim there? To destroy him. That they wouldn't have a leader of the children of Israel. There we think Pharaoh just being an evil man. There we think that Pharaoh was just wanting his own way. But behind the scenes, in the spiritual world, Satan wanted to destroy Moses. Remember even the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The use of Herod. Therefore, as Satan would do all he can to destroy those who are on the forefront of the battle. And that's the same with all those who are preachers of the word of God. Satan is targeting them. And so clearly in this battle, we must be aware of our weaknesses. We must be aware of the devil's ploys. We must be aware that he would do all he can to make his stumble and fall. If we believe the Bible and believe in Christ, let us therefore not be ashamed to believe also in the devil. I know some Christians don't want that thought to be in their heads. They want to dismiss Satan. But the word of God makes it very clear that we're not to be ignorant of spiritual things. We're not to be ignorant of the way that the devil works. So first of all, these verses tell us about ourselves. They tell us about our enemy. And last of all, these verses tell us about Christ. It tells us first of all, that Christ's knowledge of our future is perfect knowledge. Man not always seem perfect at the time. Might seem that God has got it all wrong, and I don't doubt that we've all said this from time to time. God, what are you playing at? What are you doing? Yet at the end of the day, God plans. And God decrees and God's purposes are perfect decrees and perfect plans and everything will fall into place perfectly. Look at the evidence of Christ's foreknowledge. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. That's why he said to him uh, three times and after the third time, the cock would crow, and he knew that Peter would be full of remorse, full of sorrow and hurt. 
but he also knew about Peter's repentance. And God's plan worked out perfectly because he knew that Peter would be fully restored and that he would be used mightily in a wonderful way and that he would be able to go back and strengthen his brothers. And it's because of his fall that he was seen to be a great servant of God, the leader in the early Christian church period. And sometimes we may have to go through trials like that, where we fall for the reason that we know that we're vulnerable, for the reason that God has a greater plan for us, for the reason that God wants to strengthen us, that we might be useful to him. And I believe that this is a great encouragement for all of us. It's a great encouragement for all of God's people that he knows not only our future, but he can tell. And if he knows and plans the future, then we can be guaranteed that as he's a perfect God, all things, will turn out good for those who love him. Secondly, we have the wonderful assurance that Christ is personally concerned for each and every one of us. In this story, Jesus was able to talk to Peter and he addressed him as Peter and he spoke to Peter and he said, but I have prayed for you. Singular. Peter. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know how many Christians there are in this world, but I know that there's roughly over 6 billion people in this world today. And God knows the minds of each individual and for the individuals that he's chosen to be his own people, he's praying for you. Praying for you. He's actually saying, Timothy Wood, I am praying for you. He's actually saying to Daniel, I am praying for you. I don't know if all your other names, but if I want to be personal, he's praying for you. You by name. You by sight, because you are his chosen one. What a comfort that is to know that he knows it by name and he knows it better than ourselves and he knows our weaknesses and he knows all the dangers that are ahead. He knows that Peter was facing great danger, but he takes pain and effort even on the verge of facing the crucifixion, to pray for Peter. And if he can do that in his crisis point, then think how much more he can pray for us now, when he's full of victory. And this is the thing we need to remember, that he's not impersonal. But he's very personal. We don't just have a sovereign God. 
but we have a personal God with a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the hymn writer is right when he says, take everything to the Lord in prayer because he's interested in you personally. And last of all, Christ's task of intercession guarantees our security. Look at the way he says to Peter, but I have prayed for you. If I pray for you, I might want things to be good for you, but I can't guarantee it. But when Jesus says, I pray for you, he can guarantee it. And there's the Lord Jesus Christ exercising his office as a great high priest, praying for his people. And what he did for Peter when Peter knew nothing of his danger, he daily and hourly doing so for you and for me. As the Hebrew writer puts it, the great high priest, whoever intercedes on our behalf, who prays for us. What a comfort it is to know that Jesus is praying for you. What a comfort it is for us to know that Jesus is praying for our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us that if we're facing a particular trial or form of hardship or a crisis, that they're praying for us. But Jesus, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is on his knees praying for all of God's people. We know that Peter did fail. We know that Peter did deny the Lord Jesus Christ. But God brought him through because Christ prayed for him. And it's the same with us. When we go through a trial, we'll get through them. Because we know at the end of the day, our Saviour is praying for us. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ever alert that we're in a spiritual battle? A brutal enemy who seeks to batter us. Are we ignorant of these sins? Because we choose to be. Do we ever wake ourselves up and realise that the situation I may be facing right now is because of the devil's doing? Have we ever thought of it right now that even as we sit here there's a discussion over you between God and Satan? That's why Jesus is right when he says watch and pray and put on the whole armour of God because it's a blessed promise that he prays for us and if we resist the evil one just as James says he will flee from us but it's still more blessed to know that when Christ comes again he will bind Satan in chains 
and cast him into the lake of fire, never to set sight on us again, never to harm us. Yet in the meantime, by divine permission, he let him loose with limited power. Yet the strength of Christ is this, that he has overcome the power of darkness. And the strength of Christ is this, his prayers are far greater than Satan's request. What a wonderful saviour. What a great high priest. What a wonderful mediator. What a great intercessor. We talk about people as people of prayer. Or man of prayer. But one of the great descriptions of our saviour is this. He is the greatest man of prayer. May God encourage us this morning that we realise the battle that we face and the conflict we go through is a result of Satan wanting to devour you. Yet the comfort is this. Christ is greater and stronger. May God help us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great reminder of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the conqueror of the evil one. We thank you for the reminder that he is the great high priest who ever intercedes on our behalf. And we pray that you be gracious to us, that you will strengthen us by reminding us that we will fail at times. But we have the prayers of our Saviour the Lord Jesus Christ, who is praying for us. May we be comforted by that. May we receive the utter assurance in Christ's name.